Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast. They say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't know where this saying came from, but I was reminded of it when I first learned of the idea of immunity passports. Wikipedia describes immunity passports as a document attesting that its bearer is immune to a contagious disease. The hope that some people have is that once you present your immunity passport to an employer, you would be absolved from any restrictions keeping you from working or moving about in public places or traveling. Now, while only a concept that some people are praising, I am very much against it. I'll tell you why after this quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Superpass, the go-to software for out-the-box content websites and mobile apps. With the Superpass platform, you can create your own branded website and native mobile apps to host your digital content, subscribers, and more. Do you have quality content that you want to share with the world in a beautiful and intuitive site? If so, then Superpass can provide the tech solution for you. Hold all your digital content in one place, your brand, your way. Check out superpass.app. That's S-U-P-A-P-A-S-S dot app. The idea of an immunity passport has been going viral, (laughs) pun intended, due to the COVID-19 pandemic as it has been touted as a means of speeding up economic recovery. Listen to how TRT World explained it on April 8th, 2020. If you contract COVID-19 and survive it, you might be entitled to what is called an immunity passport, a certificate that proves you're at less risk of contracting the coronavirus because you've already had it. That will most likely exempt you from some of the restrictions put in place to contain the virus, so you'll be able to leave isolation and go back to work. While immunity passports are not a thing yet, some countries like the UK, Germany and Italy are considering introducing the practice. Immunity passports would potentially help ease lockdowns, get the economy rolling again, bring doctors and other healthcare workers back to their jobs after isolation where they can continue to cure infected patients. But for someone to be given an immunity passport, doctors will first need to check their blood to see if coronavirus antibodies are present. The antibodies indicate that the person has some degree of immunity to the virus, but there are a few issues with the immunity passport. It could potentially give people a sense of false security, as antibody tests are not always accurate or effective, and will need to be carefully validated and approved for use. Scientists also do not yet know if a past infection could prevent reinfection and how long one could stay immune. There are reports from China of people who have been infected twice, and a Japanese tour guide in her 40s from Osaka was reported to have tested positive for COVID-19 twice, even though she had recovered the first time. The idea of an immunity passport is not new. In fact, the first time it was introduced, it was widely rejected. Let me give you a brief history lesson based on some information I found from this website, uh, Global Policy Journal. Did you 
know that before the First World War, uh, you did not need a passport to travel. Pretty much if you had uh, the money to pay your fare and the ability to find work and pay for your own hotel or what have you, then you could travel pretty much unhindered across national borders. It wasn't until the start of World War I that European countries began closely monitoring their borders for security reasons. Um, at the end of World War I, the intention of the signatories of the 1990-1919 Treaty of Versailles was pretty much to gradually return to how things were as far as travel was concerned. And then came the Spanish flu. The death toll which surpassed that of the war itself revealed the vulnerability of modern stakes linked by globalization to pandemics. As a result, the concept of passports mutated so that it not only regulated the movement of people for the sake of national security, but also for the sake of national health. Furthermore, uh, the demands of post-war reconstruction and recovery put a premium on healthy populations. So it was decided that one of the best ways to ensure the well-being of the citizenry was through regulating who could come into the territory and who could not. So the temporary measure of monitoring borders first introduced during World War I became a permanent feature of international relations after the Spanish flu pandemic. <laughs> Did you know that? Now, uh, national borders gradually became, among other things, uh, membranes ensuring the immunity of population against exposure to foreign carriers. Uh, but for many, for many people, borders alone were deemed insufficient in protecting against the health risks brought about by the movement of so many people. So uh, by the mid-1920s, governments began to uh, demand compulsory medical examination for all those who would like to visit their countries. It was, easy, it was even uh, proposed that passports should include a, quote, general medical certificate page. Now, the idea was that every traveler would undergo a thorough medical exam before embarking on a cross-border trip. Thus, when they arrived at their destination, travelers would be able to prove that they were in good health and not contagious. Some delegates even insisted that passports should include, quote, vaccination certificates, end quote, providing the full immunization record of their owners. So what happened? Well, technology, or rather technology did not happen. <laughs> technology was too limiting at the time. There was a question of whether one passport page would be good enough for frequent travelers. And then there was the possibility, possibility that one could get infected en route. Uh, that was raised up quite a bit. And not to mention the challenge of governing all this information consistently on a global level. There were also uh, ethical concerns about the infringement on privacy that such a certificate would entail. As one delegate at the 1926 Passport Conference in Geneva had observed, Many travelers objected to having their fingerprints taken, <laughs> let alone subjecting themselves to an intrusive medical exam. Now, you fast forward from 1926 to today, and we have China using a health code application for smartphones. Uh, in case you hadn't heard, this is how it works. Uh, China leverages the data it has collected from the mass surveillance of its citizens to assign a green code, a yellow code, or a red code. Now, if you get a green code, 
then that means you are free of COVID-19. And as a result of having that green code, you are allowed to roam in public. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the news organization Reuters did a story on it. Uh, listen to it right here. This little QR code is a lot more powerful than it looks. It helps collect data about your travel history, health status, and more. And China's using it to track citizens and stop those infected with the coronavirus. First, you fill out a questionnaire. It asks for details like your body temperature. It then generates a color code. And at checkpoints popping up across China, green means go. It's my first time to come outside after the epidemic, but I already used the QR code several times, and I think it's good. It's proof of your identity. Our country is upgrading, and I think it's good to carry it out. The codes are being scanned everywhere, from restaurants to apartment blocks. Major cities and more than half of China's provinces have started to use the color codes, a way to make tracking down infected people easier for authorities. But Western diplomats and activists have criticized China's mass surveillance in the past and expressed concerns about what else this data could be used for. William Nee is a human rights advisor at Amnesty International. We've seen the use of big data to uh, do predictive policing and detain people really for no reason. So there's a concern that although this data is being perhaps collected for a legitimate purpose, that it could potentially eventually be misused um, in ways that we can't predict right now. It is unclear whether the data is analyzed on a national level, as local authorities often use a variety of systems made by different companies, such as Alibaba's Alipay and Tencent's WeChat. But the number of reported cases has slowed in recent weeks. China only reported four new locally transmitted cases on Sunday, which were all in Wuhan, where the virus outbreak originated. That quote from Amnesty International about not knowing how the data could be misused concerns me. Actually, it, it bothers me a lot. Bear with me as I ramble off some, some random thoughts. To my knowledge, a doctor's order is needed for a diagnostic test. So for people without health care or a primary care physician, getting access to testing could be a huge barrier to obtaining an immunity passport. Another thought. Issuing immunity passports depend on tests that, as of today, are not 100% accurate. What about false positives? in which a test result says people have coronavirus antibodies when they don't, could lead people to believe that they have immunity when they don't. If they enter society, they could spread the virus or get sick themselves. Even tests that accurately show that a person has coronavirus antibodies may not necessarily mean that they are immune to the virus. Huh. Another thought. Immunity passports could split the world into two groups those who can live a normal life and those confined to shelter in place quarantines for an indefinite period of time. 
How quickly will people be marginalized from society if they cannot attain an immunity passport and thereby roam freely in public? How will that affect the suicide rate? How will that affect the domestic abuse rate? How would that affect the overall mental health of a significant percentage of the population? Something else I'm thinking about. Could companies openly discriminate and not hire people without immunity passports? If so, how long before a black market springs up selling fake immunity passports? And if that happens, how accurately could we track the pandemic or future pandemics? If anyone can get a fake passport, is anywhere in society truly safe from potential exposure? And while governments have been stressing that this is being considered as a temporary measure, at least from what I've seen, the birth of the passport after the Spanish flu pandemic is an illustration of how something introduced during a state of emergency can easily become a new normal. And uh, my biggest concern <laughs> out of so many is privacy. Hackers can already steal information about you online and companies like Facebook and Google monetize your data by selling it to third parties. What mischief could be done when someone has access to your blood data, which means that they also have access to your DNA? Could someone with this information frame you for a crime you didn't commit? <laughs> okay, uh, on that last bit, maybe I'm overthinking things. Uh, then again, maybe I'm not. Ah, big sigh, big sigh, big sigh. Of course, as I muse over this, I wonder if it's all a moot argument, thus the sign. <laughs> About a month ago, the airline Emirates became the first airline to conduct an on-site rapid COVID-19 test for passengers. <laughs> KTNV Channel 13 Las Vegas reports on the phenomenon. Well, international airline right now, is showing what the future could hold for airports. Well, Emirates, a Dubai-based airline, started testing passengers before flights. They're doing a blood test with the results coming back within 10 minutes. Now, the test does not diagnose COVID-19. Instead, though, it checks for antibodies, which can show if someone has been exposed to the virus. And some experts believe that airlines in America may want to do the same. The technology is in place to administer and track bearers of immunity passports. <laughs> and I think that is a very, very bad thing. What do you think? I'm very curious to know. Send your comments to podcast at jimstroud.com and I might feature them in an upcoming episode. That's podcast at jimstroud.com. Send me your comments. I so want to hear from you. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, I want to know about it. You can leave a comment concerning this podcast on my website at www.jimstroud.com. In addition to finding source material and related information for this podcast episode, you'll find other goodies that I hope will make you smile. And if you have not already, please subscribe to my website. Your continued support keeps this podcast train chugging down the track.
That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.